Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Next Sunday is the day in the church calendar known as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday commemorates Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, sometimes been called the triumphal entry. It comes every year. It marks the beginning of what we know as Holy Week, which culminates with Easter Sunday. It's known as Palm Sunday because of the palm branches that were thrown or spread on the road in his path as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. One might make the case that this sermon would be more appropriate for next Sunday and not a week before. And in fact, you might be right. But it is my intent and purpose to help us prepare ourselves as we come to the week of events of great significance for the Christian faith. So today we will look at Palm Sunday in preparation for Palm Sunday. And the Lord willing, next Sunday, we will look at the events that happened in between Palm Sunday and Easter. Our passage begins in verse number one here in Matthew 21. And it opens with these words. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, where were they coming from? As with most passages of scripture, it is always helpful for us to look at what comes before it, what precedes it, to better appreciate what's being conveyed. Jesus and his disciples were approaching Jerusalem. But from where? At the end of chapter 20, we are told that Jesus was leaving Jericho, 17 miles east-northeast of Jerusalem, but a change of altitude of 3,000 feet. One goes up to Jerusalem. As he was leaving Jerusalem, two blind men called out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but Jesus did not seek to silence them and instead asked them, what do you want me to do for you? But just a side note, I I always find it interesting when Jesus does this because it would seem very obvious what they want him to do for them, but Jesus wants them to spell it out. In part, what happened in this event at the end of chapter 20 is that Jesus allowed two blind men to announce him as the Messiah, the son of David. And this is significant because Jesus has not allowed others to do so. In the healing of the leper, in Matthew chapter 8, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, after healing the leper, Jesus tells him, see that you don't tell anyone. And then in chapter 9, Jesus heals two blind men, and he warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. When Simon Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. After the Mount of Transfiguration, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So up until chapter 20, Jesus has been very careful and very stern about this. You are not to tell anyone who I am. Some theologians call it the messianic secret, that, that Jesus did not want the word to get out as to who he was. And yet, at the end of chapter 20, we have two blind men saying, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. You, the one who is the Messiah, have mercy on us. It is 
quite ironic that these two blind men could see more clearly than those who had sight. They knew who Jesus was. But what is even stranger, perhaps even more ironic, is that Jesus allows the testimony of two blind men to stand. He allows them to announce who he is. He accepts the title. He does not tell them, don't tell anybody about this. Wait until I'm raised from the dead, as he told the disciples. He accepts their recognition. But we should not be surprised. When Jesus was born, to whom did the angels announce his birth? It was to shepherds, a class of people, along with tax collectors, who were considered so untrustworthy that they were not allowed to be witnesses in courts. They were believed to be incapable of telling the truth. And so who does God announce the birth of his son to? To shepherds. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, who are the first witnesses? Women who had the status at that time comparable with that of shepherds. So we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus allows two blind men, men who cannot see, to announce him as the Messiah. So he has been announced by the time we get to chapter 21. The crowds on that Palm Sunday announce him as well, but at this point the secret is already out of the bag. Jesus has allowed two blind men in Jericho to announce him. And in this, there is a principle that is to be learned, which runs contrary to the notion of the triumphal entry. Follow along, if you would, as I'll read uh, the first 11 verses, and then we will reread them later on. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I would argue that in these events we see spelled out two great truths. They are lived out, if you wish. You see, oftentimes when we think of Jesus and the Incarnation, I think we make the mistake of thinking of two aspects primarily, if not exclusively. First of all, that Jesus was here to give answers. He was here to tell us things, um, things we did not know. He came to reveal the Father to us. He told us about the Spirit that was to come. He told us the truth of our condition and our need of redemption. So we see him as basically the great truth speaker. And secondly, we see him as the one who suffers and dies for our redemption. But there is much more to Jesus. And I would argue that more than merely giving answers or giving information, Jesus lived out the answers to the questions that we might have about reality, about our purpose, about the nature of God, and so much more. Jesus did not merely speak the truth, he lived the truth. And we see it in our passage today. Specifically, there are two truths. That is the authority of Jesus, he is the Lord. And secondly, the humility, the lowliness of Jesus. Authority and then humility. Humility. 
The first incident is found in the first three verses, which we've just read. Jesus and his disciples are approaching Jerusalem. They come, they are in Bethphage, the house of figs, literally it means, on the Mount of Olives. And he sends the two men ahead to go and find this donkey with her colt. They are to untie them and to bring them to Jesus. If anyone asks, you know, what are you doing? As, as in, are these yours or these are mine? Why are you taking these? The disciples were instructed, tell them that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. The authority of Jesus is writ large in this incident. He sends the disciples. He tells them what to do. He gives them instructions on what to do if they are challenged. Some people have speculated that Jesus knew all about this um, because he was God, and it shows his deity and his authority. Uh, I won't argue that point, but I... I think it's speculating. I think we have something much more definite in this incident that shows us Jesus' authority. And that is, if they are challenged, they are to say, tell him the Lord needs them. Jesus affirms for himself a title that is normally used for God. It is generally reserved for God. Jesus does not say, I am the Lord, but rather the Lord needs them and bring them to me. The two blind men in Jericho called him the Lord. And now he uses the title with reference to himself. But this isn't simply about sheer authority. We need to be clear about this. Jesus does not say, get me those donkeys. Tell anybody who bothers you that I'm the Lord and I need them. What we find is, tell him that the Lord needs them. One would generally expect, I think, that part of being the Lord or any person of great authority, is that you, in fact, need nothing. If you want something, you tell somebody, go and get it for me, or you simply take it. But in the humility of Jesus that is demonstrated in this incident, he speaks of need. A side note, there is, in fact, I think, a specific reason for this incident. Jesus sent for the donkeys so that no one should think that he was being called the Messiah, the son of David, against his own wishes. Yes, the two blind men called him that, and he accepted their testimony. But earlier in his ministry, there were people who were so enamored with his miraculous abilities that they wanted to make him king. In John 6.15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus will not have somebody else make him king. He will announce, and now is the time. He allows himself to be acknowledged as the one sent by God. He is the Messiah, and yet there is still humility. Some would say, and we might agree on some level, that the Lord doesn't need anything. It almost seems contradictory. Um, If you're the Lord, you don't need He doesn't need you or me. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need whatever it is that we can give to him. And yet the Lord has chosen to work through frail human beings. And in some real sense, that is beyond my comprehension, God needs his people. He has the power. He has the authority. Why not just save people? Instead, it is through the foolishness of preaching that God has chosen to save those who believe. And God continues to work in his world through his people. 
That's the first incident. Now there's an interval in verses 4 through 7. The unnamed disciples do as they are told. And Matthew sees this as the fulfilling of what was spoken through the prophet. This passage, by the way, is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. We've examined the whole business of fulfillment, particularly in Matthew. We usually do this at Christmas time because in Matthew 1 and 2, he keeps saying this was done to fulfill. This was done to fulfill. And as we saw, we tend to think of fulfillment in terms of predictions. Somebody makes a prediction and then it is fulfilled. This is not how Matthew sees it. It's not certainly how it's seen in Scripture. Rather, it is the fulfilling of promises that God has made. God made promises regarding Israel. They are not mere predictions or sheer predictions. Israel's existence was due to promise God made to Abraham. God's promises declared in the Old Testament reveals that at a particular time in history with a particular individual named Abraham, God entered into a relationship. He made promises to this man. So the promise, the story of the Old Testament begins with Abraham and runs through David up to the exile and back. And now we see it in the life of Jesus. So when Matthew sees Jesus as the fulfillment, he doesn't see him as, oh, these are the predictions that were made and now they are fulfilled. But rather, this is the promise that was made and Jesus is the fulfilling of those promises. Because Matthew thinks in terms of promise rather than prediction, as we've seen in Matthew 1 and 2, his, particularly chapter 2, his choice of passages in the Old Testament oftentimes seems rather strange. Um, we'll see this in a bit, but I mean, what he, what he gets from Zechariah is not what I would have gotten from Zechariah. But perhaps I'm thinking more in terms of prediction, and Matthew is more in terms of promise. The second incident is found in verses 8 through 11. And here again we see the two truths that are lived out. Authority and humility. The authority is seen as your king is coming to you. Your king comes to you. This is Jesus. He is the king. He is the Messiah. The son of David. And as he rides into Jerusalem on that day, he is the fulfillment of God's promises. The crowds announce him. They rejoice and shout, Hosanna. This is a Hebrew expression. Originally, it was a cry for help. Quite unusual that it suddenly becomes a word of praise. It means literally save. Save me. Help me. Later, it became an invocation of blessing in Psalm, 80, or in Psalm 118. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. And then in the next verse... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's great excitement in Jerusalem on that day. Here is the son of David, the Messiah. God is going to save us. Finally, after all these centuries, Hosanna in the highest. And one is reminded of the angels as they spoke to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. Certainly there is joy. Here comes the king. He has authority. He will save. He will deliver. But the second truth is also present, and that is humility. Jesus comes in on a donkey, not a great white horse, or any horse for that matter. Unlike Alexander the Great, some three and a half centuries earlier, who rode into Jerusalem in 332 BC on a great war horse, Jesus instead comes on a donkey, a beast of burden. 
He does not come to terrify or to oppress, but to help his people, to carry their burden and to take them on himself. Here is the humility of the great king, the king on a donkey. Yes, he has authority, but he is marked by humility. There's something else, and that is when Matthew quotes from Zechariah in verse number five, he doesn't quote the whole verse. Here's the whole verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew leaves out the righteous and having salvation. One translation has vindicated and victorious. Why does Matthew leave this out? I mean, for me, to say that he is righteous and having salvation, isn't that the whole point of what Jesus is here to do? The emphasis, though, in Matthew's account is on his lowliness and his humility, the humility of the king. The crowds want us to have a picture, a vision of authority. Here is the king. Matthew wants us to remember his humility. As I said earlier, many people refer to this as the triumphal entry. In fact, some verses, um, some versions of the Bible have that as the heading for this passage. I think Matthew would prefer that we see it as a modest entry into Jerusalem. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the king. He is the Lord. This we see clearly. And the people spread their cloaks. They spread palm branches as they would do for a king as he enters into the city. Matthew wants us to remember the donkeys. That's what Matthew wants us to remember. By the way, I think we need to deal with the issue of how many donkeys there actually were. The other Gospels only mention one. And some think that Matthew is confused by Zechariah's prophecy on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That Zechariah is only speaking of one, but Matthew is speaking of two. Why does he mention two? Well, first of all, um, I would say that Matthew knew his Hebrew quite well and was not confused. And secondly, Matthew was there. So he saw what happened. For all we know, he was one of the two disciples who was sent into the town to get them. In Mark's account, the donkey in question is described as one on which no one had ever ridden. That is a young animal. But the disciples bring along the mother as well. Cloaks are placed on both, but Jesus rides on the colt. And if you look at verse number seven, uh, they brought their donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. For those people who think that Matthew is confused, about the two donkeys, they go even further and say that Matthew is saying that Jesus is actually riding on two donkeys at the same time. No, the them in verse number seven refers to the cloaks. Okay, he sat on the cloaks that were placed on the colt, on the colt, the foal of the donkey. But even here, his authority shines through. Jesus is riding on a donkey that has never been ridden. It has not been broken, if you wish. He is surrounded by shouting crowds. I think even a well-trained animal might be skittish at this point. But the colt carries Jesus into Jerusalem. I'm fairly certain that almost nothing of what I've just said to you, you've not heard before. After all, it is Palm Sunday. 
It happens every year. And beyond that, many people are familiar with the story of the Gospels, the story of Palm Sunday. So my intent was not necessarily to inform you of what you do not know. You already know this. My intent is to prepare you as we come to Palm Sunday next Sunday. And to do that, I would have you consider what we learn from these events, the authority and the humility of Jesus, and how it challenges, these truths challenge the thinking of our culture, and I think by extension, though we might be embarrassed by it, our own thinking. We live in a culture, in a society, in a world that works by an economic logic. That is to say, the belief is that effort leads to reward. Input leads to output. Investment leads to profit. It is almost, if you wish, sort of an economic karma. That, you know, if you work hard, then you'll get good results. What we see on Palm Sunday, I would argue, is in fact a different kind of logic altogether. It is an inverse logic, a moral logic. You have to give in order to receive. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. And success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride. These are all truths we have heard from Jesus in his ministry. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. This is in Matthew 16. And earlier in Matthew 10, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These truths are lived out. They are reflected in the actions of Jesus on that first Palm Sunday. And what we need to ask ourselves today as God's people is, will we in fact follow the economic logic of our culture or the moral logic that we see in the life of Jesus? If we're not careful, we will in fact embrace an economic logic and therefore we will see this event as the triumphal entry. That Jesus is coming in triumphantly or triumphantly. I think Matthew would prefer that we embrace a moral logic and see this as a modest entry. I think we don't realize it, but we have been affected more by our culture than we realize. We live in a time in which people have basically rejected moral logic because they see this life as all there is. That death marks the end of your life, period. And so whether or not you believe in heaven or hell or or reincarnation or whatever, when you die, most people see that is the end of the story. And that's why people follow an economic logic. You know, you only go around once in life or what is it, YOLO, you only live once. So you've got to do what you've got to do in order to get what you want. And this, this way of thinking has infected the church as well. God's purposes have been limited to our time here on the planet. And God's providence is seen only in terms of our lives here and now. So even verses like Romans 8.28, familiar enough, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Somehow we imagine that this applies to now, that everything in my life, Before I die, everything will in fact work out the way I want it to. 
What about martyrs, those who have died for the faith? What about those who have suffered for no apparent reason? Somehow we have taken a way of thinking, and I think in many ways, if we're not careful, we will see this on Palm Sunday. This will be triumph, victory. We will be victorious, and it's all limited to this life. There is no sense that God is seeking to transform us, that this is only a time of preparation, that God has a purpose for us beyond the grave. We simply don't see that. And God's providence, God's taking care of us, is for here and now only. In the process, we lose the sense that God is planning something far greater for us, a transformation of us, which will take us beyond where we are right now. And if we, in fact, embrace an economic logic, we will miss the truths of Palm Sunday, the moral logic that, yes, he is the Lord, he has authority, and yet there is humility. The humility just doesn't make sense. If he's the Lord, why does he need anything? If he's the Lord, what is he doing on a donkey? Uh, Our thinking has really gotten messed up. And if we are going to follow the Lord Jesus, we need to look to him on Palm Sunday in the modest entry and embrace a moral logic. Yes, Easter is coming. Two Sundays from now. But first, we have the modest entry. We have the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal, the trials, the denials, the scourging, the crucifixion, the mocking, and yes, death. These come first. And then comes Easter. I think we'd rather skip ahead to Easter. We want the good things. And somehow we have missed the truth that we see lived out in Jesus. Not simply spoken by Jesus, but lived out by him. His humility in the face of his authority. That he humbled himself and was obedient even to death on the cross. And so, on Palm Sunday, we tend to think of the palms. Hence, Palm Sunday. Matthew wants us to think of the donkeys. He wants us to see Jesus as one who embraced a moral logic of humility and who would go through even further humiliation in the days to come, but then would be raised from the dead and highly exalted by the Father. And I hope that in the days to come, as we prepare for Palm Sunday, we would think these things through. Let's pray together. Father, either we don't think about it or we imagine that somehow we are not that affected by the culture around us. And yet in a very deeply profound way, we have been in our thinking. It's not been biblical. It hasn't been what you intended. We see in your Son the truth lived out. The King, the Messiah, the Son of David, who comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
Yes, he has authority, but he also has humility. Our thinking has been so corrupted that we imagine that your purposes for us are only in this life. And so oftentimes our choices are made with a view only to this life. We have a strategy that's only for this life. And we forget that you have a plan for us that goes far beyond this life. It actually began before the world was created and will continue after this world is consummated. When we have a new heaven and a new earth. In the days to come, as we look forward to Palm Sunday, may your spirit work on our thinking and our hearts. to see the truth of the logic we are to embrace, that we are to follow. And to look to the Lord Jesus as the one who lived these truths out. I thank you that you've called us together on this day to come and worship you. We pray for those that aren't with us that you would keep them safe and bring them back to us safely. And we pray for Gia as she travels, that you would watch over her. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.